You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it is great to see you this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1, that would... uh... That would be a big help to you. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, address one uh, kind of family business type of uh, issue uh, really quickly. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying this. Uh, I've been a part of several churches, and in every church I've ever been a part of, there has been a propensity for people to show up late. Imagine that, huh? And uh, but, now let me come back and say this on the other side. I'm not sure I've ever been a part of a church that has more of a propensity to show up late than ours has. And so now, uh, you know, with that, I want to be careful here because, you know, I think at the end of the day, what normally happens in a moment like this is enough guilt is thrown onto the room where at least for the short term, there's a spasm of, you know, show up on time. And that's not what I'm going after at the end of the day. I'd really like, and by the way, I mean, we've had to like literally alter the flow of our service just because people, so many people were showing up like too far into it. And so uh, with that, I really just want you to ask the question, like, why is it that you're showing up late? And uh, at the end of the day, I think there's a spiritual issue underneath that. I just want you to be aware of, you know, it's hard for me to believe that if we really felt like I am about to meet with God, that we would be late for that. Like that, that I, a nobody, am about to meet with like the somebody, that, that we would be late to that. I don't think we would. And so I just want to invite you in to asking that question of your own soul in the midst of this, of, of why that is. And then, you know, maybe just to, to encourage you from a, a different angle on that, that can you imagine what it would feel like on a Sunday morning to wake up early enough and to get around early enough where you can come, drop your kids off, however that works for you, come in here maybe five minutes early, meet a family or two that you didn't know, sit down, ask God to to speak to you this morning, open up the Bible, read a couple of passages as a way to get ready for what God would have for you, and how much more fruitful this time in here would be if, if you were doing that. And so at the end of the day, I just want to encourage you toward that and hopefully spur you on toward that. You know, we have, uh, we have three kids, all four and down. And so I totally get showing up late to everything. I mean, <laughs> that's part, we are in a chaotic world right now. So I, I am in there with you on that. So I don't want you to hear this as a, uh, as a guilt trip, or I don't want you to hear it as a, if I'm late, I'm not welcome. That's not what we're trying to say. I'm just trying to, as gently as I can, say that's a problem. And ultimately, it's a spiritual problem. And I want you to work diligently to help us as a church family address that problem by showing up. How about early? Not just on time, but early, right? Good enough? Mark chapter 1. Uh, let's jump into the text. Uh, okay, so if, if you've been here with us over the last few weeks, we have been, this is part six of a set of sermons through Mark. We're about midway through chapter 1. Hopefully we're going to be able to pick up the pace here soon. Uh, but if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know of some of what we've covered. Let me, let me just kind of do a quick uh, kind of recalibration on where we have been. So in Mark 1.1, Mark really kind of throws all of his cards out onto the table. He would be a very poor poker player. He shows all of his cards from the opening verse of the book. Mark 1.1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
from his opening line, Mark is announcing what he's up to in writing this. That he's writing to clarify what the gospel is, and he's writing to clarify who Jesus is. And he really does it in the first verse. He's saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Savior, the Messiah, the Substitute. Jesus is all of that, and Jesus is the King. Now, let that little last phrase kind of ring in your ears for a second, that Mark is saying in that opening verse that Jesus is the king of the universe. And you see this this motif, this theme kind of emphasized throughout the letter and throughout the gospel of Mark. And you see Jesus pick it up down in verse 15. Look at verse 14 and 15 in chapter 1. This is Jesus' first sermon that that he preaches in Mark. His first sermon, and look at the theme of his first sermon. Mark 1, 15. Here's the content of the first sermon. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, so here's what Mark, or Jesus is saying from the get-go. That I've got news to announce. It's great news. It's news of a new kingdom that has come. He's announcing a, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And the kingdom of God is at hand primarily because the king is at hand. So in announcing that the kingdom of God is here, Jesus is saying, Yeah, and in essence, the king is here, and you're looking at him, that that I am the king. Now, when when we talk about Jesus as king, um, our culture, that's not overly palatable to our culture. See, we, we can talk about Jesus as savior. We could talk about Jesus as redeemer or rescuer. We could talk about Jesus as substitute. We could talk about Jesus as all those things, and in our culture, that works okay. But when you talk about Jesus as king, it becomes really uncomfortable really quickly. Because here's one of the implications of Jesus being king. It means that we need to live lives in submission to him as king. Now, you just mentioned the word submission as a preacher and like fruit starts flying at you, right? I mean, that is like one of those off-boundary, you know, out-of-the-bounds words in our culture. Like we, we hate the word. In our kind of meatistic culture, it's, you know, it's, it's I'm going to do what I want. That you don't have to ask questions about me. I'm accountable to me. Like, I, I'm going to do what I want to do in life. I mean, that is our culture to a T. But, but when we start thinking about Jesus as king, do you know what that means? That Jesus actually has the right as king to meddle in your life. Jesus actually has the right as king to change the course of your life. Jesus actually has the right to come in and disrupt your plans for your life. See, when we start talking about Jesus as king, it's what undergirds verses 16 through 20. When Jesus looks at a couple of people and he says, come and follow me. And because he is king, they drop everything and they run after him. See, that's a little bit disconcerting though, isn't it? Jesus as kings means that we're the subjects, that we live in submission to the king. What he wants, when he wants it, is what we do. That he can change our plans. He can meddle in our life. He can change the course of our life. That he's got the right to do all of that. And that is exactly what Mark is trying to show us in these 14 verses that we're looking at this morning. These 14 verses from verse 21 to 34, they make up one day in the life of Jesus and it's predominantly in two different places, in two different scenes. And they're all trying to emphasize this and to show us this, that Jesus is king. So, so here we go. First scene is in the synagogue. You pick it up in in verse 21. It says this, And they went into Capernaum. Now just a couple of quick notes on Capernaum. Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9 show us that Capernaum was was really Jesus' hometown during his ministry. 
that uh, it became kind of his adopted kind of place that he called home. And then when you look at Mark chapter 2 verse 1, we also see that Capernaum was kind of his operating base so that he would leave and he would come back to Capernaum. He would leave again on ministry. He would come back to Capernaum. So it kind of formed his base of operations. So this is Capernaum. Uh, 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had, and this is a key word for us, authority, and not as the scribes. Let me just point out two things for you. Verse 21, that Jesus is preaching and teaching. If you want to look at one of the main things that made up the life and ministry of Jesus, this was one of them. He was preaching. He was teaching. You see him constantly doing this throughout his life constantly preaching. But verse 22 shows us something unique about Jesus, that it's not just any preaching that Jesus is doing here. It's a very unique preaching that carries with it incredible authority that like was tangibly different for the hearers. So maybe let me just back up and talk about three ways that a person can preach, three different ways to go about this. Here's the first way that people can preach. It is wishing they had authority. And if you want to think about people who preach wishing they had authority, you might could think about that as worthless preaching, right? And that was the preaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is how they preached, wishing they had authorities. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, would, they would give their opinion about the opinions that people had already given about the law. They would give their commentary about the commentary that had already been written on the law. They would give their interpretation of the interpretations of the law. This was how they preached. No authority. All it was doing was quoting former, you know, rabbis and teachers. No authority being had. And on top of that, they did a wonderful job at preaching religion. They had all of these man-authored rules that would sit on top of God's law. So it wasn't just keep the Sabbath. It was if you take X amount of steps on the Sabbath, now you're dead. I mean, they, they did a wonderful job preaching religion. They could preach it until everyone died, which is basically what happened, right? This is them. It, it is giving good advice on how you can reach up to God. Like, you do this and maybe God will be acceptable. Uh, you know, maybe God will accept you. I mean, they were wonderful religion preachers. No, no authority had there. No authority from God in the midst of their preaching. And it's interesting, especially when you just think about them preaching religion, especially, you know, in light of the sermon we did a couple of weeks ago on the difference between religion and gospel, that Martin Luther makes this incredible insight that the default mode of our hearts is works-based righteousness. For us to try to, to make ourselves acceptable by what we do. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve first sinned. They immediately tried to get on these loincloths. They, they tried to sew these fig leaves together to cover themselves. And that's an expression of, of trying to, to work for your righteousness, trying to work to make yourself presentable to God. And it's interesting. I think when you're thinking about preaching, to, to consider this. If the default mode of man's heart is works-based righteousness, so will the default teaching of man be. Works-based righteousness, which is why the theme of so many sermons is good advice. What you need to do rather than good news about what Jesus has done for us and on our behalf. So this is the scribes and Pharisees. It was preaching, wishing they had authority. Here's the second way you can preach. It's with authority. Like you can actually have authority in preaching. This is Paul preaching. This is Peter at Pentecost preaching. This is John the Baptist preaching. They carried with them great authority from God as they were preaching. 
I mean, it was like, when you think about what, what preaching with authority means and is, it is like when a guy is preaching and all of a sudden you have this thought, I think he has gotten out of the way and God is like using this man to address my soul in the midst of this. That that is preaching with authority. It's when a man has been with God, been called by God, set with God, equipped by God, and he stands up and preaches the gospel with power and passion and authority. That this is what we're talking about here. And, and so there is a way to preach like that. And man, I, I just want to tell you that when I think about Stonegate and our area, this, our community around here, now I pray that we would have more preaching like that at Stonegate 1. And I pray for the churches in our area that we would have more preaching like that that carries with it wonderful authority from God to address our hearts. But here's the third way you can preach. And this is what makes Jesus utterly distinct from every other way of preaching. Is you can also preach as the authority. Like Jesus isn't quoting the authority. Jesus is the authority. He's not a herald of the king announcing good news on the king's behalf. He is the king announcing good news of the kingdom. Do you see the difference? This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he can say this, Matthew 5 through 7, that you have heard it said, but then he'll come back and say this, but I say to you, see, this is Jesus preaching not with authority, but as the ultimate authority in the universe. This is King Jesus preaching proclaiming the gospel with incredible authority as the authority. This is him. I'm looking into a tomb that Lazarus has been in for four days dead and calling out a dead man's name and all of a sudden his heart starts to beat again. That that is Jesus preaching as the authority. And this is what the people notice. That while we have got a unique form of preaching here, this is, not, this is not scribe. This is not Pharisees. This is preaching that has authority attached to it. Okay, now when you think about uh, Jesus the King coming and preaching the good news of the kingdom, you would also think that as the King is here, he's preaching good news of his kingdom, that the kingdom of Satan would start to stir in the midst of that, wouldn't you? That there's going to be something that starts to happen in the middle of the kingdom of darkness. And that's exactly what we see in verses 23 and 24. Like Mark is about to show us that not only is Jesus authoritative in his preaching, but, but Mark is about to show us that Jesus is also, he, he like has authority over demons. He has authoritative power over the dominion of darkness. He has authority over demons. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a.k.a. a demon. And he cried out, this demon cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can you picture a moment, like just take this into to like 21st century, it's us in this room, all of a sudden you, you, you are listening to a sermon that is gripping your heart when all of a sudden someone stands up and a demon starts to talk. We have just entered the octagon at that moment, right? <laughs> I mean, that is when craziness breaks out, huh? And this is exactly what's happened. Jesus is just preaching with incredible authority. And then all of a sudden, a man stands up and a demon starts speaking through him. Okay, now I, I want to take a segue here. And we're going to talk for a few minutes on just this theme and idea of angels, demons, God, Satan, this whole kind of spiritual warfare sort of a thing. Because here's the reality. When you open up your Bible and you start reading it, you can't avoid this issue. 
that you start in Genesis, let's just say Genesis 3, you see great evidence there, and you go all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, and you're going to see this idea of spiritual warfare, angels, demons, God, Satan. You're going to see that permeate the Scriptures. It's all throughout the Scriptures. And, uh, and here's what you're also going to see. That in the life and ministry of Jesus, this sort of spiritual warfare, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, start colliding with even extra intensity through his life and ministry. So if you just start reading forward in Mark, here's what you need to be prepared for. Mark 1, we've got a demon that shows up. Mark chapter 3, we've got Jesus dealing with a demon. Mark chapter 5, another one. Mark chapter 7, another one. Mark chapter 9, another one. Five times in the first nine chapters of Mark, we see Jesus dealing with with the kingdom of darkness with Satan, his little minions, his demons. So, so we can't get away from this idea. So I think it's going to be worth just a few minutes of our time this morning to go ahead and investigate, kind of press into, and uh, kind of address this issue of demons and angels, that whole supernatural realm that we see displayed throughout the Bible. And what I want to do is I want to um, talk about one objection, give you one warning, and then try to, to give one explanation on how this thing plays itself out. So here's the objection first. When it comes to demons and Satan and this whole supernatural realm that we see in the Bible, here's the first objection I want to deal with. That this is primitive. I mean, come on. We live in the 21st century, right? You're telling me like this demon thing, this angel thing, this casting out demon, this whole thing is like real? I mean, isn't this kind of next to like tooth fairies and leprechauns and all that? I mean, come on, let's... We are modern, sophisticated people. This is primitive. Let's just go ahead and see that now, right? So let's just address this objection. So first of all, if that's you, and I'm going to assume that's a lot of us in the room, partly because you live in a culture where this is assumed. It's natural. So so it's going to be impossible for you to lose all the, the different kind of influences of culture. So I know that that exists here. And to varying degrees, it's probably in most of us in the room. So here would be the first maybe response to that. If that is how you feel, that this is primitive, come on, we live in the 21st century, get over it, let's move on. If that's how you feel, you need to know that one of the reasons you feel that way is is because we live in a very naturalistic world. Two to three hundred years ago, we went through a period of time called the Enlightenment, where reason in so many ways dethroned God. So for us to believe something is true, we had to put it into a a room and we had to, to test it. We had to touch it, taste it, feel it. We had to, to do the scientific kind of experiment on it to make sure. And, if, and listen, if the scientific method said it wasn't true, we don't believe it. Now, now we're all part of that culture. That, that has profoundly shaped how every person that grows up in the West thinks about life, including you. Profoundly shapes it. I, I heard one guy addressing this say this about just life and culture in the West. That we live in a world without windows. It's a world without windows. So, so the supernatural has been closed off. That, that no longer exists. It's just what we can see, touch, taste, and listen, test. And if we can't, if we can't test it, if we can't taste it, it's not real. Okay, this is the world you live in. So just in response to that, let me just say a couple of things. One is this. When it comes to the supernatural, the problem with science is it can't test it. Like, you can't put a demon in a test tube and do the scientific method on it, Right? That the problem is it's an unseen world. You can't do your little experiment on that. So it's impossible to test. It can't prove it or disprove it. Now, in light of that, I think it's good for you to know that just because you can't see it or feel it or kind of taste it like that or test it, 
Just because that's not happening doesn't mean it's not real. Maybe it means that you just don't have the senses, touch, taste, smell. You don't have the senses to take in all that's real. I mean, think about that. Maybe you just, in your five senses, maybe you don't have all the senses necessary to take in all that is real in the universe. And secondly, just in light of the scientific method can't prove or disprove that the supernatural world exists, in light of that, if you're the guy that says, or the girl that says, you know what, there is no way demons, the supernatural could exist. I mean, wouldn't that be an expression of a little bit of arrogance? I mean, it's assuming that you know everything there is to know in the universe. And maybe we could all just swallow a little bit of our pride and walk in with a little bit of humility and say that maybe we don't know all that there is to know. Maybe there is an unseen world that we're, we're unaware of. So, so that's number one response to just this idea of it being primitive. Here's the second one, though, is that we have all been subjected to a lot of bad caricatures of Satan and demons that makes it really hard to believe. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And you have to be in a really weird place to even write a book like this. So, so it's a book written from the demon's perspective and from Satan's perspective. And so the book kind of chronicles screw tape as he is trying to train a lower level demon called uh, Wormwood. So, I mean, just think about that. So he's writing from their perspective. And so if, if he uses the word enemy in the book, that's used to describe God, not Satan. So you can just see that you kind of have to be in a little bit of a weird place. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says as he is, as he, Screwtape is advising Wormwood on how to make sure he keeps kind of the whole spiritual world in the dark for this patient or this Christian that he's dealing with. Here's what he says. He says, I do not think, this is Screwtape to Wormwood, I do not think that you will have very much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. I just think about the, the, the traction that has in our culture. Like when people think about Satan and demons, they think about some person in red tights, a red pitchfork, and some horns on its head. And listen, that, that's, right, that's right next to tooth fairies and the leprechaun. Maybe put Sasquatch in there, right? But that's not what we're seeing in the Bible as representing Satan and demons. And then thirdly, uh, you know, I had a really interesting experience in seminary where one of my seminary professors looked at, at a room, you know, full of us seminary students, and he said, what is the, the primary presupposition of Christianity? Like, what is the thing that you have to assume coming into this thing? And here was his answer to that. The primary presupposition, the thing that you have to assume coming into Christianity is that there is a supernatural world. That there is, that the supernatural world exists. Listen, we believe in things like a resurrection, like a virgin birth. How about this one? We believe in something called God. That's supernatural. Are we seeing that? That that is not a naturalistic belief. That is supernatural. That there is a God who controls, who is providential, who created. That, that is a supernatural belief that we have there. And if we believe that God exists supernatural, it's a really small step to believe that he could have created angelic beings like demons and angels. So, so it's a really small step to then believe in angels and demons and Satan and all of that whole spiritual world that lies behind it. So that presupposition is there for all of us. If we believe in God, we've already walked into a world with windows, with the supernatural. So that's the objection. Here is the warning. 
that we need to be like beware of the ditches when it comes to spiritual warfare. Listen to C.S. Lewis describe the two ditches that people have when it comes to spiritual warfare, angels, demons, that whole thing. He says it like this in the preface to the Screwtape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. That, that is incredibly profound insight. That they are pleased with both errors. And hail a materialist who don't believe in them or a magician who, who is fanatical about them with the same delight. So, so maybe you could talk about these ditches uh, in these two ways. One is that like, the first ditch is fanatical. That man, we're looking for a demon behind every bush. I mean, it's, it's where can we find the next demon? You know, that's our mentality. It's an overemphasis. It's being fanatical. It's being obsessed with that. Okay, that's one ditch. He, the other ditch is what we might just call forgetful. That, that we just, and this is probably most of us in the room, that we live our life as if there is no spiritual war happening right now. I like what Clinton Arnold said. He's probably the premier New Testament scholar on Satan and demons. He said this, A servant of Christ can no more avoid demons than a gardener can avoid weeds. Now just let that settle over you. That, that we live in the middle of a spiritual war that's happening right now. And for most of us in the room, we live totally unaware of that. So think about the last time you had a disagreement. Like you were at someone's throat. Could be a, a marriage issue, a spouse thing. Could be a friendship thing. Could be a son-daughter thing. Or you know, a, a, a father-son or daughter thing. A parent thing. Just think about the last relationship that you just butted heads in an incredibly terrible way. And I'm just going to guess in that moment, you didn't stop and ask this question. I wonder, I wonder what Satan's up to in the middle of this. I wonder how the spiritual war that we're in the middle of is contributing to this. I, I wonder how Ephesians 6, the fact that, that, that this thing is not a flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that person or that person, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I, I wonder if we just stop to think about that. That we're actively, you know, we're actually in the middle of a war like that with a, with a real enemy called Satan, a real powerful being that wants our demise and destruction. I wonder if we just stop to think, ask that question. I mean, could, could my thinking right now in this moment be, be being influenced by Satan? That the way I feel, could that, could that be being influenced? That this confrontation, this rivalry, could, could that be the work of Satan in the midst of this thing? Now, if you want to just see the balance between fanatical and forgetful, I think this is it in the Bible. When you think about the, the biblical balance, it's this. In the Bible, demons and Satan is, ne listen to this, never emphasized. It's acknowledged but never emphasized. What is consistently emphasized throughout the scriptures is Jesus. Amen? So we're not to be a people who are obsessing about demons. We're to be a people who are obsessing about Jesus. And so we want to be that sort of a church that, that acknowledges that there is a real spiritual war happening, but doesn't obsess over demons, obsesses over, over our Savior, over Jesus, over King Jesus. That, that's the balance that we want to have here. Okay, now for uh, a, a quick explanation. Like I hear questions about demons it come up pretty, pretty regularly. And like this is how they are typically phrased. Can, can, can I be like demon possessed? Can, can that happen? And let me just address this really quickly by saying this. 
Um, I, I don't think using the word demon possession is actually the most helpful way or the most biblical way to talk about it. The idea of demon possession is not the, the most prevalent way in the Bible for it to be talked about. It's more like this, the word demonized. Now, when you look at the word demonized throughout the Bible, it has a really wide spectrum of what that could look like. From over on this side, it could look like this. Satan offering just enticing lies for you. Just putting the bait of sin in front of you and enticing you with it. Just, just having that sort of influential voice in your life over there to over here in this passage, what we see happening is this guy is so controlled by Satan that when he talks, a demon literally is manifesting himself in this guy's voice and talking through this guy. So you have that whole spectrum of what it looks like to be demonized. Now comes the question of, well, can a Christian be, be like demonized like that? Can, I mean, can he be like controlled and, and overtaken like that? So let me just give you this great gospel news. If you are a son or daughter of God in the room, this should allow you to sleep at night in the middle of this with great comfort. 1 John 4.4. 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? That we have a powerful God, more powerful than Satan, and that God lives in you if you're a son or daughter of God. So no, you cannot be like overcome by Satan. You have a new master. His name is Jesus right? And no longer under the dominion of darkness. Now, let me just kind of maybe take this and use a metaphor that Jesus uses later on in Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 27. He uses this metaphor of a house and a strong man. And, and so I just want you to maybe, we'll just kind of build on that and picture this. Picture your house or your life as the house. If you are a Christian, here's what's been, here's what's true of you. You have a new master of your house. His name is King Jesus. So Jesus now has, has purchased the house and he now owns you, your house, your life. You have a new reigning master, King Jesus, of your life. Now, that master is stronger than he who's in the world. That, that master has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That reigning master is the most powerful master on the planet. But here are the two buts in that. But number one is even with Jesus now owning the house and, and owning you, purchasing you and owning you as a Christian, as a son or daughter of his, Satan can still harass, annoy, agitate, afflict, weigh down, persecute, put down a Christian. Hence the reason that a lot of us raised our hand that we're in the middle of just really difficult times in our life right now. That that can happen for a Christian. That still can happen. Even though Jesus owns the house, that can still happen. Now, I want you to listen really carefully to the second part of this, and I hope the Spirit of God might use that for the good of the people in this room this morning. Secondly, the second but is this. Although God owns the house, as a Christian, you can leave the doors of your house unhinged and unlocked and the windows open to give Satan free roam to come in and out of your house. Not to overtake the house. You've got a master who's more powerful than Satan. But Satan can come into the house and do all sorts of damage and destruction in the house. And so this is part of what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 is talking about. When Paul says, uh, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. And then in verse 27, he says this, giving no opportunity for the devil. No foothold for the devil. Here's what he's saying. That when you open yourself up to sin, when you say yes to sin, like anger, like envy, like rivalry, like a critical spirit, like gossip, like lust and pornography and greed, when you're saying yes to sin, here's what you're doing. You're opening your front door, you're opening your windows, and you're inviting Satan to come in and play in the house. Now just, just 
allow that to settle over you for a second. When you say yes to sin, you are, you are opening up the door. You are opening up the windows for, for Satan to come in. Now, I'm just going to guess last night, and I just want to apply this across the room this morning. I'm going to guess last night that you did not sleep with your door wide open. I'm going to guess last night that you didn't sleep with all your windows up. Why? Because you don't want a marauder coming in your house at like 2 a.m. But I am pretty sure across this room this morning that many of us right now are living with our doors unlocked, unhinged, our windows wide open because we are saying yes to sin in our life right now. We are saying yes to pornography. We are saying yes to greed. Listen to this. We are saying yes to spiritual apathy in our life. We're saying yes right now. Now, as a parent, I, I want you to know, I feel a weight for that in my house. Like I feel a serious weight to make sure the windows are locked and the door is shut in our house. And listen, this is the way you do that, by self-watch. But when any known sin comes to the surface, we quickly repent of that sin. And when we hold on to it, when we say yes to it, when we coddle it and and cuddle with it, when, when we do that, when we don't seek to put that sin to death, we are saying to Satan, here's our house, come in and play. Here are our kids, come in and play. Now, I just wonder how many of us this morning need to be on our face in repentance before God of any known sin in our life in an effort to shut the door and to lock the windows. Amen? Okay, back to the text. Verse 24. So that was the objection, the warning, and the explanation. And now I want you to see what happens in this text. Verse 24, um, here's what we have. Uh, The sermon is right in the middle of it, and it comes to a screeching halt as this demon interrupts everything. And look at the three things he says here in verse 24. Statement number one is a recognition of Jesus. And And it says, and he, the demon, cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So it would be similar to saying, please get away from us. We don't like you. We don't want to be in the same room with you. So so there's this recognition of Jesus. Statement number two is a recognition of the opposition Jesus had to him, of Jesus' opposition. Look at the second statement here. Have you come to destroy us? And that word destroy, or that word us, has there's been a lot of ink spilled over that. On what does that mean? Is that us like multiple demons in this guy? Is that us like this demon also kind of referring to all the spiritual people in the room that have just been hardened to God, hard-hearted? Or is that us, and I'm in this camp, referring to all demons everywhere and Satan? And I think it is. I think it's this demon saying, I know that since the King Jesus has arrived, that our judgment is also coming, that our days are now numbered, that he's recognizing that he's got opposition here and it's not going to go well for him. And then the last statement, it's a recognition of Jesus's authority. Look, look at this last statement. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, isn't that interesting? See, all throughout the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus, you've got the crowds who are always confused about who Jesus is. But do you know who sees who Jesus is with absolute clarity all throughout the Gospels? The demons. I mean, look, they're looking at Jesus saying, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Isn't that interesting? Man, I pray that God would give us at least that much clarity in the room this morning. And then I want you to see how Jesus responds 
to this demon. Like what, what it looked like when Jesus and this demon went toe-to-toe. But before we look at that in verse 25, I want you to flip over to Acts 19. And I want you to see in Acts 19 what happens when a person interacts with a demon without authority. When a person comes and approaches a demon without authority, let's just be straight up here. Satan and demons have extraordinary power. In Ephesians 2, Paul, or God through Paul calls a Satan the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, calls Satan the God of this age. So Satan and demons have extraordinary power. So if you're the person that thinks, well, man, I'm just going to go demon hunting now. Like without the authority and the power of Jesus, I'm just going to go ghost busting some things here. This is what's about to happen to you. Look at Acts 19. It'll be on the screen for you as well. In verse 11 in Acts 19, it says this. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, and I cannot read that line right there without just commenting on, who knew that was a job? Like in the first century, you ask your son or daughter, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? An itinerant Jewish exorcist. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, it's just so strange. Okay, it keeps going here. So so these exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven of them, or uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh-oh, this isn't going good. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, if you can just picture a junior high playground for a second. And do you you remember that time when you saw two guys fight? Now, after the fight, there was all of this debate on who won. I mean, you know, was that punch the best one or was this? Like, who won? There's all this debate over it. But can we just all agree? If you show up to the fight with all of your clothes on, and you leave running away naked, you lost the fight. Amen? (laughs) You did not win that fight. These guys got whooped by this demon. Are you seeing that? So so I love verse 17 as well. It says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. You don't ever live that down. (laughs) That that never (laughs) goes away, right? (laughs) Here's the big point though. You're seeing what happens when a person approaches a demon without authority. They are extraordinarily powerful, not something to be trifled with. Now go back to Mark 1 verse 25 and look at this. Here's what happens when Jesus approaches these demons with authority. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Are we seeing the difference in that? One person got worked, left naked. Jesus just says the word and they leave. He just rebukes them and they they obey. He commands the demon and the demon does exactly what he says. The demon minds better than your dog minds. 
better than your kids' mind. Ladies, better than your husband's mind. I mean, Jesus says something and the demon obeys. Mark is trying to show us that this is not just a scribe. This is not just some ordinary Pharisee. This is King Jesus, authoritative, has authority over demons and over everything. It's that Jesus we're dealing with here. And look how it goes on in verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority, key word. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Says a word, demons obey. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. I mean, Mark's trying to show us that this Jesus is something altogether different. He is a king, has ultimate authority. And then look at the next scene. We're almost done here. Look at the next scene, verse 29. This is at Peter's house. And look at what happens here, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came over and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Mark's trying to show us here, Jesus isn't just authoritative in his preaching. He doesn't just have authority over demons, but he also has authority over diseases. Jesus looks at this woman, comes over and touches her, and the fever instantly leaves her. I love how it says it in Luke's account of the same scene. It says that Jesus rebuked the fever and it left. I mean, he didn't like give her a steroid shot and some Tylenol and say, give it 30 minutes and you're going to be fine. He he rebuked it, just spoke to this disease, this fever, and it instantly left her. Are you seeing that? I mean, this is what you call supreme authority. Jesus can say the word and a disease leaves. A person is healed. And she gets up and she's walking around the house, working around the house. I mean, she had the flu like two minutes ago, and now she feels great. It's an instant and miraculous healing of Jesus. Like, this is the authority that Jesus has. He speaks and the disease just disappears. It's gone. It's no longer there. And then look at how the the story finishes here in verse 32. This is all in a day, kind of one day in the life of Jesus here. This is how it ends, verse 32. I would be ready for a nap. After a time in the octagon with the demon, after a healing of this lady, I'm ready for a nap. But here's how the uh, the day ends. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark is just showing us here. We are not dealing with a rabbi. Just another rabbi around Jerusalem and around Palestine. We're not dealing with just another scribe or a Pharisee. We are dealing with the king of the universe, Jesus. That's who we're dealing with. So so this is really the question of the morning. Mark Mark is not commanding one thing this morning. He is inviting us into seeing something this morning. And so it really just begs this question. Are we responding to what we're seeing in Jesus? Are, Are we responding to Jesus, not just Savior, not just Lord, but as King? the one with absolute rights over our life? Are we responding to Jesus like that? 
that would be appropriate to that. Like Mark is working really hard in Mark 1, the first chapter, to show us that, that Jesus is king. He is a sovereign king. It's not like Satan and Jesus, both of them powerful. We'll see who wins in the end. No, it's Jesus creator, everything else creation. It's Jesus is king, everything else is subjects, including Satan. Right? He's showing us that Jesus is sovereign. He's showing us that Jesus is a conquering king. I love how 1 John 3, 8 describes it. It says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Could there be anything more comforting to a Christian, to a son or daughter of God than to know that Jesus has totally dismantled all the forces that are arrayed against you? To know that Jesus has done that. He has totally conquered them according to Colossians 2. See, Mark is working hard to show us that Jesus is the sovereign king he is the conquering king. But, but here's the problem with where we are so far. And I'm glad Mark doesn't leave us just here. Because if we're seeing Jesus just as, as a sovereign king and a conquering king, he could get you to obey that way, but only out of fear. He could get you to follow, but only out of begrudging submission. And here's where the story of Mark and the gospel of Mark is going to take us. That Jesus isn't just a sovereign king and a conquering king. That Jesus is a good king. Amen. See, people in the first century, they knew about kings. They'd been around them all of their lives. And here's what they knew about kings. That when it came time to do battle, kings would always send their citizens and their subjects out to give their life for king and country. That it was the king in the comforts of his palace sending out his subjects to fight the battles for them. But Jesus is an altogether different kind of king. He's a good king, the best of kings, who, who looks at us and says, hey, you don't put on the gear of war. I'm going to put on the garments of war. I'm going to go fight the battle on your behalf. I'm going to go be slayed in this battle so that you can be saved from that battle. I, I'm going to go fight and get the victory for you. And so we have Jesus, the good king who left the palace of heaven traded the riches of heaven for the rags of this world, came and lived a perfect life in place of our very imperfect one, died on the cross for our sin, all of our sin stacked onto Jesus, all of God's wrath for our sin given to Jesus, and rose from the dead on the third day. You know, it's an interesting parallel in this passage where it says that the demon shrieked with a loud voice, it's the exact same word used to describe Jesus on the cross when he cries out, shrieks with a loud voice, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the truth is, Jesus was forsaken. He was crushed so that you wouldn't have to be crushed. He was slayed on the cross so that you could be saved. That's Jesus, the good king, amen? And it's when our hearts start to see that and sit in that that something deep in our soul becomes unloosed and liberated. It's no longer following Jesus out of begrudging submission. It's following Jesus the King because we love him, because we desire him, because we long for him. And I pray that would be true for our church. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.